you know, when Beth and I came back from New Guinea, we were real young, and uh, I'd do a lot of men's conferences. That was fun. Uh, you'd go out and meet 50 new guys, play football, get all bruised up, you know, eat steaks, and have a bunch of friends at the end of it, and sing Kumbaya, and it was just great. And then I was uh, asked to do missions conferences. Totally different. Totally different. Uh, missions conferences basically go, go like this. Come and die. <laughs> and you don't make 50 new friends. You generally don't make any new friends, okay? Because the missions, the message of missions is just tough. It's just tough. And so this is a missions conference, and it would be inappropriate for uh, there not to be one message regarding why not you and what's it going to take. Because, folks, we've talked on phenomenal topics. They've been addressed wonderfully. The clarity of the gospel, the need for that, things that are currently going on in missions. Uh, you guys have great information now. But that's not enough. Some of you have to go. You've got to step forward. And what are the attributes? Who are these ones that are going to step forward? What, what, what makes it such that stepping forward alone won't be the thing they do, but they actually run the race and they finish and they actually leave the gospel behind in a reproducible way in a church that's ready to last the test of time. Uh, I can't help but get into this without talking about the issue of consecration. Uh, that term doesn't get used a lot. Uh, designer missions has taken over the landscape. Uh, time frames that are workable, uh, situations that seem viable, uh, kind of fits my criteria. This is the new form of missions, aside from even the heresies that are out there. Uh, man, the personalization of missions that happens today. Designer missions. So let's go back to the scriptures today, uh, this afternoon, and we'll just see some of what God calls for in consecration, what God calls for in sacrifices. Let's commit our time to the Lord Jesus. Father, we're grateful that you have spoken to us in your word. I thank you for every man, every woman in this group here. Lord, may we be doing business with you this afternoon. May we go beyond understanding and consider our lives as not dear to ourselves. Lord, turn this large room into a sanctuary. May every thought of relationships and finances and education and what we want to do with our futures, put them aside. May we listen to your word with open hands, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Turn back, please, to Second Samuel chapter 24. We're not going to be hitting anything that's probably not familiar to many of you, but as we look at the topic of sacrifice, uh, we'll, we'll take one particular instance here, and then we'll go to another passage in the Old Testament. Second Samuel chapter 24, uh, this is toward the end of, end of David's life. David has done many battles in a godly way, but David at this point in time, in the early verses of the chapter, David uh, caves into that desire to want to know. I want to know how many armies I have. I don't want to live with mystery. I don't want to go into battle this time not aware of how strong I am or how weak I am. And I want to know. I, I want to know the answer. I want to know the outcome. Not willing to walk by faith as he had so many other times as he went into battle. So he caves into that desire. I just want to know. Man, how many times we get stopped in our tracks. We want to know things that God says, wait on me. Move forward in faith. He, uh, he gave the order to Joab, and Joab pleaded with him, don't make me do it, don't make, make me go out. And Joab's not necessarily the most godly guy in the scriptures, but Joab himself knew, don't do this, David, don't do this. David pressed him, Joab went out, numbered the armies, he came back with a report of a million, 300,000, huge amount of people, and J David realized immediately, oh my gosh, what have I done? What have I done in my old age? I just made a big blunder here. 
And so it says here in verse 13, so Gad went to David and said to him, uh, the wrath of God's gonna come on you basically, shall there come upon you three years of famine in your land or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you or three days of plague in the land? Now think then it, think then it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. Obviously God had sent Gad to talk to David. And David said to Gad, I'm in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into the hands of men and so the Lord sent a plague on Israel from the morning until the end of the time designated. And 70,000 of the people of Dan to Beersheba died. Think of that, 70,000 people died because David had to know. He was not willing to walk by faith. I, folks, I, I cannot help but draw a, a linkage here between the people groups waiting for the gospel because people that God has spoken to, they want to know more. I just want to know what's at the end of the outcome. That's a very common question for people. What, what do I do next? I remember Beth and I had been serving in New Guinea for 17 years. We could see the end of the tunnel coming, man. We're in our early 40s. And uh, God, what's next? What's next? And uh, I just had to keep telling walk faithfully now. Walk faithfully now. Let the unknown things lay in the hands of the Lord. And the next worked out. But that's such a common human tragedy. We want to know things that only God knows. To be willing to live with the unknown and continue to move forward goes against our grain. 70,000 people died in this case. And when the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. And when David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I'm the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. So on that day, Gad went to David and said to him, in verse 18, go up and build an altar on the floor to the, of the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. And when Aruna looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. What a terrifying sight to see David, King David with the power of life and death, with his posse, with his entourage, uh, with all the people that, was, that were, would typically be coming with him, to see King David unannounced coming to your little threshing floor. Terrifying sight. And so Aruna does the natural thing <clears throat> that any of us would probably have done. He says in verse 21, why is my Lord the king come to his servant? He, David replied, to buy your threshing floor so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Man, Aruna's just happy to get away with his neck. He has no idea why David is there. He has, what have I done? I'm sure, I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man. I'm not on the inside circle. I know nothing of why he's here. I know that man, thousands of people have died. This is a time of real tragedy here in Israel. Man, no doubt, he is trembling. <clears throat> and for David to say, I've come here to buy your threshing floor was probably a gigantic relief. And so Aruna replied, let my lord the king take whatever he pleases, whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. O king, Aruna gives all this to the king. And Aruna also said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. And obviously you guys know the end of the story here. But there was a decision that David had to make. I can do a sacrifice that's cheap, that's easy, that's doable, that literally costs me nothing. And it will still look good. It will still look good. I'll stab those oxen. 
I'll burn up the threshing sledges, the smell of burning flesh, burning skin. It all looks the same. The blood will flow. It all looks great. Everybody around me knows David did an offering, a sacrifice back to God. And in our current 21st century, we're looking good. It's a pretty high priority. I dare say the majority of us would have taken it. But David, this man after God's own heart, wasn't a perfect guy. We know enough about him. He wasn't perfect. There are no perfect saints out there. I love the scriptures revealed the downsides, the weaknesses, the flaws of so many of God's chosen people. David, this man after God's own heart who had great gaps in his life. As a dad, just one. Oh, we could go on and on. He knew something about God that we're in danger of losing. He doesn't want cheap, easy sacrifice it. It, it, it's unworthy of the term. And so he replies, one of the great insights of his life, he says back to him, but the king replied to Aruna, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. I won't do it the easy way. I, 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 I get distressed as I hear about young people trying to fit missions into a time frame. I've got a couple years. This won't affect my career I can get right back on track. I can do a gap year. It's convenient, and it'll look good, and I'll see a part of the world. I'll have an experience I can't do here, fitting God in. And we, in so doing, we offend the God of heaven. He doesn't want that which is cheap and easy. He wants it all. He always wants it all. He always wants it all. We won't go into Revelation chapter 2 and 3, but we will turn over to Malachi Chapter one, turn over there. We'll see the same principle here. Trying to, that clock is covered up. Malachi chapter one, this is uh, toward the end of what we call the Old Testament time. Again, the sacrificial system had been highly developed. Everybody knew what a God-appointed, God-endorsed sacrifice was supposed to be. A firstborn male, perfect skin, perfect, no blemishes, no eyes put out, no flaws, no diseases, perfect, perfect. Before we get into this passage, I, I, I want to share something with you that I learned, gosh, I think it was 1977. My wife and I were, uh, being, in, we were being trained up in the high desert of Oregon, and um, I was real excited because, uh, man, I sat in the church there in Baker City, Oregon, uh, what they called boot camp. Boot camp was intended to wash you out. Uh, we had two years of theological training, and then we went to one year of what they called boot, boot camp. And uh, it did. It washed out a lot of people. Uh, they, they ground you down. Uh, character, character, character. We lost half of our class. And then I got married to Beth. We started over again. We lost half of that class too. They wanted to see how bad you want it. What are you willing to endure? What are you willing to sacrifice? How many of your family members are you willing to bury? Those are very appropriate questions. They've always been appropriate questions in the missions world. So we lost over half of two classes. But uh, I heard this message at, at a church in Baker City, Oregon, and uh, went that lunch. With, there was a wonderful farmer there. His name was Dave Wright. Dave and Mary took a bunch of us single guys under their wings, and uh, we were out there talking about the, the message. And Dave wasn't a, a Bible exegete. Dave, Dave Wright, he was a rancher. That's what he was. He was a rancher. And Dave says to me, and I can't even, I can't even imitate the Eastern Oregon accent, so I won't even try but uh, I could try a few. I could maybe try to get Ian's down, the Australian down. But I'm not even going to try with this one here. Dave Wright said to me with that Eastern Oregon drawl, Brad, do you know why he wanted the firstborn male? Not, not really. I just know he did. Hear this clearly. 
God wanted the firstborn male because that was the one you wanted to, to turn into your breed cow, your breeder, your breed bull. Because the firstborn male typically is going to ensure if he's the breed bull of your herd, the next generation will be bigger and stronger. God wanted the thing that would, gen, that would ensure that the next generation would be better. I want your future. I want it. There was purpose in that. Now you got artificial insemination, so all that's gone out the door and we don't need any of that stuff anymore. But all things being as they were for <laughs> thousands of years, you kept that firstborn male back because he's gonna be bigger, stronger, and healthier than the, than the rest of the ones. So keep that in mind as we talk about the sacrificial system here. And man, this was highly developed. Everybody knew what God wanted. In the Malachi's day, they weren't doing it. They had gotten casual. They had gotten casual in their service within the temple. And God is ticked off. The sarcasm is brutal here. Pick up in verse six. God saying through the voice of Malachi, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where's the honor due me? If I am a master, where's the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. And think on this. It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. The priests were only sacrificing the animals that others were bringing in. But the lay people, not maybe being quite as clear, God did not hold them responsible. It was the priests, the ones who worked in the temples. It was the priests, the ones who had access to the scrolls. It was the priests, the seminary graduates, who should know better. You're being casual with me. I've spoken clearly, I've delivered clearly what I want, and you're playing fast and loose, and I'm not happy, I'm not happy. But they asked, how how have we shown contempt for your name? Come on, what are you talking about? You're being a little bit harsh here, Malachi. Maybe you're talking a little bit over speak here. Back off, think about what you're saying. How have we defiled you? And then Malachi, God's word via Malachi, comes back to the nation of Israel, the priests, in, the priests in particular, by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. Were they saying with their mouths? Oh, God, disown you. Oh, God, you're not worthy. Oh, God, they weren't saying things with their mouth. But their actions, the way they took his word lightly, casually, they did what they wanted to do in officiating within the temple grounds. Yeah, God's spoken about, I want to be known by all tongues, tribes, and nations. Oh, yeah, Jesus did say, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But you know what? We've got a lot going on here at our church. We've got a lot going on here at our church. By saying with their actions, I'll take your word casually. I'll give you back what's convenient. They're, they're the, it's the lay people. It's the farmers, the ranchers, the bakers, candlestick makers. They're the ones bringing us these, these bad old offerings and the priests accepted him. The priests did not push the people. No, 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 I, I won't even dare to sacrifice that back to God. I'll get in trouble. I'm responsible for what I put on that altar. It was the priests who knew better. They knew the word of God. They knew what God wanted. And they did what they wanted. They wouldn't train the people. This is the God of heaven. We do not mess with him. We do not belittle him by giving him that which is convenient. That's what, that which won't harm the future of your herd. Don't do that. that you know, they would not train the people. God continues to be sarcastic. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? Well, yeah, 
Like, yes, it is. When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Rhetorical, of course. Says the Lord Almighty. Do we get the tone, the sense of outrage God has toward the casualness that they're interacting with his revealed word? This is what I want. As the church of Jesus Christ, he has been equally clear. This is what I want. I want to be known. I will be honored among the nations. I will be worshiped by every tongue, tribe, and nation. Don't play fast and loose with me. If you want my blessing on your church, on your ministry, don't play fast and loose. I'm serious about this. My son hung on a cross, and once he left that cross, he spoke with absolute clarity about what he wanted to see accomplished. And you're going to fit it into your schedule? You're going to keep the machine going and not jeopardize what's it's looking really good. Because I'm sure those priests, you know what? Hey, we stab them and they, and they squeal when we stab them and they bleed out and the smell of burning blood, it, it looks so good. God knew what they were giving back to him. God, knew the, God knows the places in your churches that his great commission occupies or doesn't occupy. And studying will not get you there. Obedience to the revealed will of God must be preeminent. So God says, or they said, now implore God to be gracious with us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? And God's reply, oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you says the Lord Almighty, and, and I will accept no offerings from your hands. Go ahead, keep going through the motions, keep being active in our missions world. We've got a lot of activity. Look at what we do. Man, I get into a lot of churches. Look what we do, look what we do, look what we do. This afternoon, 3,100 language groups on this planet with nothing of the gospel, and we are the busiest generation ever in the realm of missions. We're traveling more stamps in the passports Actually, I had to tell one guy who was so proud of his passport. He had so many stamps. He visited so many stamps, so many countries. I finally got tired of looking at similar passports, and I said, that passport's going to judge you. Where did you stay? Where did you plant? Don't tell me about the places you've seen, the places you're aware of. Where have you planted? We're not friends right now. <laughs> um, let's stop the business. Stop. 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 Let's refocus, rehome, get strategic, and get serious about what has been called the Great Commission. Our Savior was not obtuse about that. And he says, my name will be great among the nations, but not if you continue to teach, take me casually. Turn back to eight, Genesis chapter 22. You know where I'm going. Genesis chapter 22. Yo, as a radius staff, especially those that were there from the beginning, <laughs> we, we joke, we chuckle about the folly uh, of some of the things that we did when Radius was starting out. We would not allow people with children to come to Radius. And uh, we thought this would be a lean, mean machine down there and kids are just going to get in the way. And uh, yeah, I know, stupid, huh? <clears throat> and once we uh, realized, man, we're, we're saying no to a lot of people, uh, we allowed children to come and now we have yeah, to our joy, we have campuses that are overrun with kids. We've got gap year students that take care of them. I won't go into all that, but yeah, it's really cool. But one of the things we realize, it isn't just good because now we can have more people there. It's absolutely necessary because if we're going to talk about consecration, you've got to 
have the kids in that mix. Individuals, couples without kids, not easy, but easier to talk about laying their lives down. Will you put kids in that mix? How many of your children? We walk through the life of Adoniram Judson really, really slowly. We walk through those burial times where he buried his children. We have to take that on because our kids have become our altars too often. I know for Beth and I, Mancy and Brooks and Brandon and their younger sister Natalie, putting them on an airplane four times a year, seeing them fly off, little teeny Cessna 109, hanging by a propeller. And after a while, I'll be honest with you folks, uh, man, man, we've been doing this for year after year after year, and, and that little teeny propeller, it stops spinning, they go down in the jungle. And this is what God has for us. It's not common today, but I'll tell you what, we'll speak from that to our students, and we'll tell them, we'll encourage them, guys, you're probably not gonna have to put your kids in boarding school, but don't you draw lines in the sand with God. I'll do anything but. I'll do anything but put my kids in an unsafe situation. Don't even start down the road. Don't do, the, don't do dishonor to your church by going into missions if you've got a line in the sand. And it may entail you burying your children. Our church has buried many. I've buried many people overseas. I dug Richard Rowe's body parts out of an airplane after he slammed into a mountainside. Buried Matthew Townley, little boy. Um, it's part of it. It's the sacrifices, the losses. Chris Gennaro, our church. Man, the Lindsay family in our church. Car crash. Killed their first son, oldest son, Casey Lindsay. Right away. Second boy, Caleb Lindsay, wheelchair for the rest of his life. Excuse me, got the name wrong. Matthew Lindsay, wheelchair. Caleb, uh, injured. Carrie, uh, took her almost two years to get back to New Guinea. Remember, (laughs) do I have time to tell us? Yeah, I remember going into uh, the Lindsay's. uh, They were finally back among the people group that they were working with uh, after, man, mourning over the loss of their eldest son, uh, seeing their kid put in a wheelchair. But Ron and Carrie Lindsay were the closest to learning the language of the Siawi people. And a bunch of us went in uh, to build uh, cement uh, sidewalks in the middle of the jungle so that Matthew could get around in his wheelchair because you couldn't work a wheelchair in the mud of the jungle. So we built sidewalks so we could get to the river and do, do this and do that. And uh, yeah, it was just their, their commitment to the Lord Jesus blew us all away. And uh, so we're, we're tired, it's Sunday morning, and so we sat down and there's a picture, a beautiful picture of Casey on the wall in their living room. And uh, we're sitting down, and, and we're going to pop in a little cassette tape to listen to a worship service from one of their supporting churches. And uh, we happened to get to the part in the beginning of the service before the sermon was given. They were, they were raising money. They were raising money to buy two tape recorders for another missionary family that was learning language. And uh, <clears throat> the individual giving the announcement made this statement. God doesn't want much. Just think of the widow. She gave two cents, and God was thrilled with her. I'm looking at the tape recorder. I'm looking at Ron, and right over his shoulder is a photo of his dead son. I was angry. God doesn't, it wasn't the two cents. It's the fact that the woman held nothing back. She gave it all. And if we're going to pursue missions, we've got to find those few that understand that, and in fear and trembling, I'm all yours. I'm all, we've got to, folks in your, your churches as you vet people, do they have plans for the future? Are they thinking 15, 20 years and then I want to come back and do and do and do? Don't even start. That might take longer. Man, 
Seeing a church planted among an unreached language group is not some chevron for your sleeve. It may be the one and only thing. You're not gonna have 12 of them on your arm. It may be the one and only thing that you're gonna do with your life. And for some of you, and I'm looking at a lot of young people here, for many of you. Now, I'm not saying it's for all of you. I'll say this clearly. I believe for every healthy person under 40 years old, in light of Jesus' words in Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20, Acts 1, your responsibility is to report for duty to the leadership of your church. How can I do other? This is what my Savior has said. You've walked me through it. I'm not excited. In fact, I'm very, very scared. But how can I hold my head up in looking at what Jesus has said and go on? Don't make that decision unilaterally, guys. I just feel, I just feel you'll be one of many people in their 40s and 50s who actually kind of dread missions conference because they have to, on an annual basis, why didn't I do it? Why didn't I do it? Genesis chapter 22, sometime later God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, we can look back now and see it was a test. Abraham didn't know it was a test. He didn't know it was a test. I've heard people kind of gut this whole story with the, statement that, well, Abraham knew he would get him back. Uh, Read chapter 21. Read chapter 21. Chapter 21, God says to Abraham, take Haggai and Ishmael and get them out there in the desert. They're not the child of promise. Just think about that. Abraham loved Ishmael. He He loved him as much as he would love Isaac. He was as flesh and bones of his. He, man, he'd gone fishing with Ishmael. He'd skinned, you know, fish with him. He'd shorn sheep with him. He'd gone hunting with him. He'd been a dad to Ishmael. Now this wonderful little boy, he's got to push him out into the desert. The look in his eyes, Dad, what are you doing? Dad, what are you doing? You're my dad. I didn't do anything wrong. You're my dad. Don't even kid yourself that Abraham didn't think God was serious about this. You know, the only other time that we know about Ishmael ever being with Abraham was at Abraham's funeral. He never saw him again alive, according to scripture. Ishmael and Isaac would be at dad's funeral. But the story goes on. And Abraham replied, here I am. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac. Very specifically, God wants Abraham to know that's what I'm asking for. Yeah, I'm asking for that one too. Whom you love and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. That's very specific. A burnt offering means that he doesn't get to stab him. He has to disembowel him. That's what burnt offerings meant. And the knife that is spoken of here, he was going to have to disembowel his own son. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will show you. The word love here, take your only son, whom you love. That's the first time in scripture the word love is used. Yeah, I know who I'm talking about. Yeah, Abraham, yeah, that one. The one that all the promises are, yeah, that one. I want him too. Folks, unless we're looking at this in the eye as parents, even as singles who may get married, who may have children, if we've got these lines in the sand that absolutely contradict, intersect with our consecration, don't step forward. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your church's monies. And we have to go back. I remember, man, just... A few weeks ago at graduation, I don't know if Peter Lee's here, but Peter and I were interviewing, giving exit interviews to our students. 
And uh, this is the first time I've sat with Peter doing this. And uh, Peter's a very sharp guy. Peter, uh, this one wonderful lady, uh, Peter begins to question her. uh, What are you going to do when this happens? And I thought, that's fair. And then this, and then this, and then this. And he painted the situation so clearly, so starkly, so, with such great difficulty. I was, I was breathing deep. She begins to weep. What are you going to do when that happens? Her response rocked me. She said, all I can say is, he's worthy. He's worthy. Folks, our missionary candidates must think through their darkest hour, their darkest scenario, and then end that horrible story with, he's worthy and his grace will show up at that hour. He will be there, he will be there, he will be there. We cannot consider our missionary candidates ready unless they've walked through their darkest scenario. That's part of our job, it's part of your job as a church. How bad do you want it? That's what they called it when I was in New Tribes. He is worthy. And so says this, I, I, I love Abraham's response. Early the next morning, the writer is very specific here. He doesn't say sometime later. So then, the, the, oh, he's early the next morning, and I believe Abraham knew if I think about this, about this too much, I won't do it. The curse of the age, overthinking. When God has spoken clearly, it's time to move. Well, I'm just going to de- de- delay for a little bit. There's no such thing as delayed obedience. There's obedience and disobedience. God spoke. Abraham understood the words. Early the next morning, he got up, and he saddled the donkey, and he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac, and when he cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. It's about a three-day hike. On the third day, can you imagine? So we get right to the third day. But can you imagine day number one at the, at the end of the first day of hiking, walking toward Mount Moriah? They set up camp. They get the fire going. They put on a couple fish, you know. And uh, Isaac's like, hey, Dad, that was fun, man. This is really cool, just you and me hiking together. And the heavy that Abraham's carrying, I'm going to be disemboweling you. But Isaac doesn't know anything, so he's just stoked to be with Dad for some hours, you know. Day number two, they wake up, you know, and Isaac's having a good time, all the responsibilities on dad, you know, and they they set up camp for day number two and get the fire going, you know, cook a few more fish, talk stories, you know, what's going on back there with mom and the other kids, you know. Just a wonderful time for Isaac, and Abraham is carrying this heavy. (sighs) Day number three, on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance, and he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. I get real weary of when worship gets equated with singing. I love our worship leader. We call him that, Nathan here. I don't know if you guys know this, but Nathan's parents served in Papua New Guinea alongside Beth and I, and uh, Nathan and Brooks were in the dormitory together. Uh, they both understand some things about this, the costless. They saw heroes out there. We were talking about a little bit earlier, one of, the, one of the heroes, a guy named Doug Crute. Doug Crute served without great results among the Oninga people for years and years and years and years and years, and Doug had real fair skin, and uh, Doug began to get his face carved up. Doug lost his nose first, skin cancer. Then he lost one of his lips. Then he lost another lip. Then he lost an eye. He lost another eye, and Doug looked like a monster by the time he went to be with the Lord. Man, you never heard anything from Doug, but he's worthy. He's worthy. Eye has not seen, 
ear has not heard, it's ne- not, neither has it entered into the heart of man. What God has prepared for those who love him is worthy. Take another body part, go ahead. I look like a freak anyway. <laughs> to have a cavalier, take it all, take it all. Take my kids, you're worthy, you're worthy. That's harder, I get it. I'll tell you what, Judge was never cavalier about the death of one of his children. Man, the pain this book here to the Golden Shore, the pain that is spoken of. Man, John Piper does a massive, this book that just got promo, the, the big thick one. You read the story of Adoniram Judson, it will rock you. Mandatory reading for those who, should be, those are, who are going overseas. We will worship, and then we will come back to the first place in scripture where the word worship is used. What did Job do when God took everything from him? He fell to the ground and he worshiped. Guys, let's redefine worship. Worship as we look through the whole of the scriptures. Worship is giving back to God that which he is worthy of. It's not singing. Singing can be a part of it, but it surely is not the extent of it. Giving back to God that which he is worthy of. And the story goes on. You know the the end of the story. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 11. There's so many stories of heroes we could tell you. They have dotted my life. Uh, I'll be honest with you, my dad. My dad joined up with the United States Navy December 8th. The day after Pearl Harbor, my dad joined uh, with the Navy. And uh, they found out that he was a tool and die maker, and they put him on an airplane, flew him straight to Pearl Harbor, him and all these thousands of other uh, guys that knew how to work with metal. They gave him a, a week of underwater welding training, and they said, now get this fleet up. Stories of pulling bodies out of the ships, pulling bodies out of the ships for months, trying to get these guys, and of course, they only lived for a few days, and what happened. I remember as a boy, uh, my dad and his World War II buddies uh, would get together once in a while at our house, and uh, man, I'd sit outside. I wasn't allowed to be in the room. They'd, they'd sit down with all their drinks, you know, and a lot of laughs, a lot of laughs, and then to get real quiet. I had an idea what they were talking about, and I, and I would sit outside there, finally I'd fall asleep, and laughs again, and, uh, and I would wonder the next morning, what would I be like? What would I be like? Uh, my dad taught me never to quit. You just don't quit. I remember coming home for uh, Brooks and Nina's wedding. And uh, every time we came home to America, my dad, would, he was disgusted with the lifestyle that I've chosen, with the career that we had chosen. Uh, absolutely disgusted with it. And he tried to talk me out of it every time we got home. And I, 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 yeah, in time I got frustrated with it and I just endured it. But this one particular time, uh, this was 1998, the years they got married. And uh, anyway, we're home and dad is giving me the same barrage. And uh, I tried a new tact with my dad. And I said, dad, you know, um, we're two years away from completing the translation of the New Testament. We're two years away from finishing well. Did you really raise me to quit? That shut his mouth. Don't you love that the Lord Jesus, he the night before the crucifixion, I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. I, I, I appreciate, I respect those who come to Radius. They are starting well. But our goal is to turn them into finishers that will finish well. I love the words of the Apostle Paul that he writes to Timothy, man, the, the pathos, the, the melancholiness, and yet... I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. Therefore, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. You know, the, the scriptures speak of many crowns. But you look at the way that Paul pursued righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. 
He says, the crown of righteousness which he'll give to me, and not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. Does your lifestyle speak of someone who longs for his appearing? Are you putting it all on the line? Are you raising your kids as my wife's parents raised her to be expendable? Your life's not about you, honey. I didn't find that out till I married her. I was raised this way, to lay my life down, to lay down the lives of my children. And the Lord put us to the test quite a few times on that one there. <clears throat> one time as we were very new among the teddies, we had helicoptered in, we were in the middle of building the airstrip, we had no way to get out, and uh, Brandon, he, uh, he came down with something or other, and uh, we didn't know what it was. We figured it was a cold or maybe it was a flu. Maybe it was... After a few days, somebody said on the radio, it might be malaria. Why don't you uh, treat it as if it's malaria? So we did. Beth crushed up a, uh, <clears throat> some Camaquin tablets, infant Camaquin, shoved it down his throat. And uh, we figured, ah, that'll probably take care of it. You know, it's pretty tough stuff. And a couple hours later, he threw it up. He had a fever about 102 at this point in time. And he was only about 18 months old. <clears throat> and... Uh, and so we had to pull up a shot of chloroquine, and we gave him the injection of chloroquine. And uh, uh, we figured, man, that's really strong stuff. That'll, somewhere in the afternoon, that'll break the fever. And uh, man, Denton, Denton, 103. Uh, man, he's, he's throwing up and starting to get diarrhea, too. Man, we're, we're telling other missionaries, hey, would you pray for him? You know, and next morning, we figured during the night, surely the fever's going to break. Got up in the morning. It's nearly 104. He's got you know, diarrhea throwing up. Uh, gave him another shot of chloroquine. Uh, about 12 that afternoon, his eyes began to roll. And we realized, man, we're losing the life of our son. And we called out to the nearest missionary, Tom, and said, Tom, can you come and get us? And Tom lived so far away, and logistics being what it was, we knew that Tom would not be able to get to us t- probably till about 6, 6.30 in the morning. And uh, miss- missionaries all over New Guinea were praying for the life of our son. And... Uh, we got up the next morning, he was still alive. We had some, one of the teddies carry Brooks down the ladder, and I carried Brandon down the ladder. Beth's with us there. And uh, there were a bunch of teddy men standing there uh, as they had heard that, that we're going to be walking out. And they wanted, to, they wanted to talk with us, and I couldn't speak their language. There was only one guy that spoke Melanesian. I could speak Melanesian, but I could not speak teddy. And so there's this group of guys, and I stopped. You know, I'm, I want to get going because, man, my son's hanging by a thread here. And... Uh, and so the guy that spoke uh, Melanesian, he says, what, what are you doing? And I turned Brandon's head around like that. I said, can't you see my son? He's nearly dead. We're going to try and go get him some help. And he spoke to the Etedis. And you know what they did? Started laughing. <laughs> Crazy, ooga-booga-land talk that I couldn't understand. I was furious. I was furious. And, uh, and I asked the guy, what are they saying? What are they saying? What are they saying? What are they saying? No, 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 no. And I badgered him. I basically physically threatened him. What are they saying? They're saying this. He's dead already. Take him back to your house. He'll die completely this afternoon. You can bury him here. You can have more kids. Grow up. Folks, I wanted to do despicable things to them. (laughs) I had to turn Brandon's head around and just start walking down the trail and for two hours, we're just sloshing, 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 sloshing through semi-swamp. Beth's asking me, how's he doing? No change, no change. 
and we're both getting more and more despondent as we realize this doesn't look good, this doesn't look good. He's still, there's still a heartbeat. There's something going on in there. And uh, I hear my wife's voice behind me. She starts to sing. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrows will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Folks, I'm married to Joan of Arc. (laughs) I tell you, to have her with me, and there were times that she was weak, times I was weak, but folks, it was unquestioned. We stay here till the Etetis have the gospel. We hope we don't bury any of our kids. We could tell you the story about Brooks. We could tell you the story about Buzz. He will call your bluff. If you've got a little line in the sand, don't start. Spot the line. Erase the line. Get over the line. He is worth it. He is worth it. We look at Hebrews chapter 11, this, this hall of fame of faith. And uh, I, I tell you what, one of the things I love doing, especially when it's quiet, uh, we've got pictures of all the classes that have graduated from Radius. They're still working hard, man. There's, we got 250 guys overseas. They're learning first languages. Some of them are learning second languages. But the situations they're living in, the sacrifices they're going through, the difficulties, it is an honor for every one of us as instructors to teach these men and women. And uh, I'm glad I don't know what's ahead of them. I'm glad I don't know uh, the trials they're going to go through. But, man, this is God's Hall of Fame. And it's very familiar to you all. I'm just going to pick up <clears throat> in chapter 11. Verse 13, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from afar. We train our students to learn languages, to plant churches, and do translations. And we realize that some of that's out of their control. God's going to intervene in certain situations. God's going to take some of them out. Lord willing, it's God and not bad decisions, not discouragement. But that's the goal. But the ultimate goal is to be faithful to their God, faithful to their God, and to do all that is within their power to stay, to learn, to survive, get back up when they fall, when they make a bad decision, get back in the fray, see that people group reach with the gospel. And some of them will get there, and some of them won't. And the, the faithfulness of these ones in Hebrews 11 They died and they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. We all know this. Jesus' words will come true. I will build my church. He's gonna get it done. To have a first-hand part in that, to be at the tip of the spear, to lay it all down for that, what else could we want? People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Isn't that amazing? They, they, they didn't even get to see the, the outcome of these promises that they longed for, and yet God is not ashamed to be called their God because they lived and died in faith. They lived and died in faith. They didn't actually get to see the reward. They didn't get to see the outworking. They didn't get to see the church planted in an unreached language. They didn't get to do it. And others would come along later and take over for them. You know, one of the things that we do at Radius, the last day, we show the first 28 minutes of Saving Private Ryan. 
wave after wave after wave that came ashore at Omaha Beach. That beach was in doubt for hours. They considered pulling all those men off the beach. They couldn't do it. There was no reverse gear when you invade a beach like that. And the wave after wave that didn't receive the promise, that didn't see the glory of finally surmounting that cliff and taking that beach. Folks, the similarities are too many. The similarities are too many. Some will build on your shoulders. I built on the shoulders of men and women that came to New Guinea long before us. Man, I was a wimp. I'm so grateful for guys that came and broke the jungle open so I could actually move in among the teddies. We had our difficulties, but everybody builds on somebody else. And some people get to actually get to see the result of their work. By faith, <clears throat> 17, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. We've gone through that story. Verse 20, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to the future. By faith, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. They, they heard the voice of God. You go back and you think of guys like Noah. You think of guys like Abraham. They didn't wake up and read the scriptures. They heard the voice of God once, twice, three, maybe four times, and they kept on track. They kept on, man, I I heard that clearly. I heard that clearly. I heard that clearly. And it decided the trajectory of their lives because they heard the voice of God. By faith, they kept going. They kept going. Noah kept building. Abraham kept going, kept believing. Man, he's going to be the father of many, many nations. He never got to see it. You and I know it happened. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Not afraid of the king's edict? Not afraid of Pharaoh? What the heck? Everybody's afraid of Pharaoh. That's, that's, we've, we've read that so many times. Oh, he wasn't afraid of Pharaoh. Dude, he must have been a really tough guy. He wasn't a tough guy. He lived by faith. God wants to spare this child. It's a special child. I will risk everything because God has made it clear to me. I will risk everything. By faith, Moses, when he had grown, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated. I love that. He chose to be mistreated. I was talking with Chad the other day about this aspect of people who are willing. I'm willing to go. How many times have you heard that? God only wants you to be willing. Baloney. I would love to say it in stronger terms. I won't do that. Baloney. You know what I want to say. God only wants you to be willing. Oh, shut up. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2 just for a moment. Philippians chapter 2. He only wants me to be willing. He only wants my willingness. God doesn't care about my location. He just wants my heart. (laughs) Wrong again. Wrong again. Yeah, he wants my location and my heart. He wants it all. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. And man, we could go through 1 through 4. Time precludes us from doing that. Paul writes this to the Philippians, speaking of the Lord Jesus. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. There was no need in the Godhead. Everything was perfect. Fellowship was wonderful. There was no sense of lacking. He had it all. 
the Godhead was perfect. There was no need to institute this plan to redeem humanity, to create humanity, nonetheless redeem it. But it says this, verse 7, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. The father did not put his foot in the back of the son of God and say, now get down there and die for them. Our savior, he willingly humbled himself. He took the initiative. Even as we see over in Hebrews 11, he made himself nothing. Let's go back there to that passage. He, rego- <clears throat> he chose to be mistreated, Moses along with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. He had that eyes of faith that we'll talk about here. He left faith, by faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. I'm sure you've puzzled over that. He saw him who is invisible. He never saw God with these. He saw God with that eye of faith in his chest. Man, it's so hard to develop that in our current age where earbuds are everywhere, driving up the five, you know, man, going to a baseball game. I remember as a boy going to a baseball game, and you know, a guy caught the third out. You know what happened then? The defense ran into the clubhouse, and the offense ran onto the field, or the guys that were on offense, they ran out into the field. No music, no nothing, just quietness, just enjoy the game. You guys have been to a baseball game. What happens now? Third out. Rah, 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 rah. <laughs> the place goes crazy. You're not allowed to be silent because we don't like silence. We don't like silence. How do we develop that eye of faith unless we are content and at home with quietness? No earbuds. No, you know, well, man, FOMO. Nobody's here with me. I'm okay to be alone. That's where maturity happens is in the alone times. He had that eye of faith in his chest. By faith, he left Egypt. We've already been through that. And the the writer's getting increasingly excited about the topic here. He's getting uh, shorter and shorter in his biographies. He says in verse 29, by faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell and the people had marched, after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? And now he really starts flaming. I don't even have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle, and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. These heroes of faith, they didn't do it because they were strong, because they were wise, because they were smart, had, they had good timing. They heard the voice of God and they pursued and they walked. They stepped out, they left homes. They embraced danger, they embraced whatever God was telling them to do because they heard the voice of God. God has spoken clearly in his word what he wants to see done in our age. Where are the ones that will step out? And I say this not because it's a nice little homily. Guys, the hardest step in pursuing a future in missions with all the many, many hard steps is the first one. Here's the life I thought I was gonna be living. Here's what my education was taking me toward. Here's what people said I was good at. Here's what, here's what, here's what. It all makes so, so much sense. And based on what Jesus said, I can't do it. 
I have no answers for 99% of the questions in front of me, but I have to start taking steps that, that direction. That's the hardest step, guys, to walk away from your dream, from your passion. This keeps going on. These guys here, had, they had wonderful outcomes. They had good outcomes. Outcomes, I hope, for all, every one of our radio student, students. But obviously, there's a different half of the list there in the middle of verse 40, 35. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging. While, some, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. And then the phrase that I cannot believe was able to be written down in Holy Scripture, the phrase that rocks me every time I read it. God says about these men and women the world was not worthy of them. <sighs> what do you want to hear when you see the face of your Lord Jesus? Well done. I, I'm sure we all want to. Is your life really heading that direction? Is your life heading currently in the direction of my brother, my sister, my son, my daughter, the world was not worthy of you? Or are we really actually content to mail it in? I, I'm not sure where I <laughs> told this story, but me and my good friend Greg, we were hiking through the jungle, <clears throat> and we, uh, I know I'm getting short on time, I'll be, I'll be done here in a moment. <clears throat> we were hiking through the jungle, going to another uh, area where we were going to give a, a set of language checks. We had a long trail ahead of us, and uh, we were telling stories about previous girlfriends, we were telling stories about jobs that we'd had when we were in America, we were telling stories about, you know, what do you think heaven's going to be like? And uh, I, I remember I, I rolled out my best story about what I thought heaven was going to be like, and I thought that was pretty impressive. And then Greg, who's a previous baseball writer, uh, Milwaukee, whatever it is, um, Greg, he, uh, he rolls out his story, and it totally smoked my story. Greg says, he, Greg says when I think of heaven, I think it's going to be maybe kind of like this. Uh, you got this little boy who's born in the Belgian Congo, never seen a baseball bat, nonetheless a baseball game. Baseball game. But he, uh, he gets a ticket. He's you know, to New York City, and he gets a ticket to a Yankee game. And he goes to a Yankee game, and he has a couple of hot dogs, and he has a Coca-Cola, and he's watching the game and the excitement, the smell of the fresh mowed lawn, and, and the, the, the wonderful atmosphere. And uh, that little boy who walks out of that game, what a wonderful afternoon. He's just stoked. And then there's a little 12-year-old boy, he plays Little League Baseball. He's a Yankee fan. He knows the names of all the players. He knows the rules. He knows everything about it. And he goes to that same game, and he walks out of there, man, has his Cracker Jack, a couple hot dogs, and I'm like, that was an awesome experience. Oh, my gosh, he's on a high. Then he got another guy. He was actually a New York Yankee last year. He finished out his career. He knew all the players. He knew the games. He knew the umps. He knew, he knew everything about it. He saw the game from a box seat, and he walks out, and that was really, really fun. They all had a good time. Who do you think enjoyed it more? The guy who was totally involved in the game. Guys, what's waiting for you in heaven? How involved are you in the thing that God has set before his people, his church, you and I to do? Taking the gospel. I know it's not for everyone. I'm not saying that. But are you absolutely, seriously finding your part in your church and you guys that are young enough and healthy enough to do this? Are you planning to talk to your church leadership? I don't want to do this. I'm not excited. I love it when radio students get honest enough to say, we don't really want to be here. <laughs> but based on what Jesus said, I can't unsee what I've seen. That's why they're there. 
I want to read you from Adoniram Judson something that I would not be bold enough to say (laughs) were he not to write it down. So I will hide behind my brother who has long ago been with the Lord Jesus. And if it's offensive, excellent. (laughs) The author, uh, Courtney Anderson, writes this opening, and this was, his opening was written in uh, 1954. Uh, And then he'll cut into Adoniram's actual words. It says, the opening of 1833 brought additional missionaries from the United States. One of them's names was Miss Sarah Cummins, an unmarried woman. Later, there were to be other additions to the mission's forces. But as usual, they could not be of much real use until they became fluent in the language. And that would be a matter of years. At least one of these had come out with the understanding that his service was to be for a limited period of years. Adoniram was disturbed like all of his experienced colleagues. And then he quotes Adoniram, so get mad at this man who's dead for over 100 years. Adoniram wrote this, I much fear that this, that this will occasion a breach in our mission. How can we, who are devoted for life, cordially take to our hearts one who is a mere hireling? I have seen the beginning, middle, and end of several limited-term missionaries. They are all good for nothing. Though brilliant in an English pulpit, they are incompetent to any real missionary work. They come out for a few years with a view of acquiring a stock of credit on which they may vegetate the rest of their days in the congenial climate of their native land. The motto of every missionary, whether preacher, printer, schoolmaster, ought to be devoted for life. Once we have seen the worthiness of our God, once we have seen his desire to be known among every tongue, tribe, and nation, what else can you do? If you're able to be at the front line, the tip of the spear, the honor and privilege of sharing Christ with a people group for the very first time is equaled by nothing else. What a privilege to see shackles, blinders come off the eyes of the Teddy people. I thank God for the many, many supporters who sacrificed greatly for our church, those who stood behind us. But don't confuse one part of the story for the other. If you're young enough and healthy enough to do this, don't look for a way out. Embrace it. He is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the men and women that are in this room. God, give us no rest from your word. Give us no rest from your spirit who is even now tugging at the hearts of many. Step forward, step forward. Walk away from your dream. Lord, assure them of your goodness, your sovereignty, that nothing will touch their lives out of the realm of your good hand, allowing it to come in and endorsing it to come in. Raise up from this group, these couple days, many who would go to those who have never had a chance to hear the gospel in their language. Bless the remainder of our day, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.